All right. Welcome to the Positive Deposit Podcast, where we transform minds and change lives. I'm your host, Presley Nelson Jr., and I'm so excited about this episode because we usually talk to patients or cancer survivors, and we have a live breast surgical oncologist, um, one of my close and um, dear friends, especially because we went to Howard Campus Pals, and so this is this is a friend, you know, more than a doctor. And so um, I'm so glad to have Dr. Shonda Grisby. And so uh, before we get started, I know um, uh, I wanted to give you the time to kind of introduce yourself and then we'll, we'll jump right into this, this dope conversation. <laughs> well, hello, everybody. I'm Shonda Grisby. I am, as Presley said, a breast surgical oncologist. I've kind of been all over the globe. Um, again, obviously from California, but I went to school in DC, the real HU, as everybody knows. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and of course, uh, met Presley and we've kind of been, you know, into 200%. And again, it's one of those things where you end up where you end up. And here I am in Louisiana, <laughs> um, where I um, have, I guess, staked my claim into the breast uh, world out here um, and just trying to help people uh, make it through things that are, that are tough. So. Awesome, awesome. Well, welcome to the show. So I'm gonna jump right into it. When did you know you wanted to be a surgeon? You know, like what? Because before, I mean, I know you were doing your thing at Howard, you know, um, biology, I, I'm assuming, but uh, you took it to the next level. When, what, uh, what gave you that drive? Honestly, I think my first thought was that I'm just going to be a doctor, like whatever doctor that meant. <laughs> you know, my parents will tell people, she just one day woke up and was like, I'm going to be a doctor. We don't have many doctors in my immediate family. So they have no idea where that thought came from. And honestly, I don't either. But I think I just kind of set out on that path. And um, I kind of found through um, life that I knew I had to be doing something with my hands, I guess. Um, I like to get my hands into things and build and play and tinker. And so I think it's kind of how I segued into surgery because I thought, well, I actually enjoy painting. I enjoy doing certain things. And so that's how surgery became a part of but I thought I could do because I think of surgery as art, I guess. And so that's yeah. kind of where I approach every person, every patient that I'm talking to or dealing with. And in the operating room, it's the arts. So people only do it outside. <laughs> and no matter what you take an hour or remove, they, what you have to leave them with is what, is what you're leaving your mark with. And so that's pretty much, I think, how surgery kind of appeared in my mind, I guess. Um, okay. um, where did you go to med school? Undergraduate school, Howard, and then... I ended up going to med school at the um, Charles R. Drew. It was a um, combination program between Charles R. Drew and UCLA. Um, okay. And it, we were essentially a part of both programs. What Charles R. Drew brought to the table was um, more focused on underserved populations. So that's kind of where my niche always is, is to, to try to help and to impact the lives of those who are less fortunate or who don't have as much access and you get all the same trainings as our fellow UCLA students, but we had to do other things. We had to have a thesis paper, do some other outreach in the communities. We, we went to different areas that were probably not as flourishing um, to do some of our rotations. And so that has always been instilled in my mind. That was part of the reason why I, I went to that program because I knew I was going to still get my UCLA education, but I wanted to be still focused on those who can't help themselves. And of course, that's kind of been my, my mission ever since. <laughs> Wow. And uh, uh, so did, were there any other schools that, you know, you were applying for or um, and before, you know, you picked this this school to um, pursue this journey? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think truthfully, I interviewed at quite a bit of schools all across the United States. As, as people know, I have no problem going from one place to another, making friends and, and <laughs> you know, surviving, <laughs> I guess. Um, but I, I interviewed in schools in North Carolina, like Duke, and I'd interviewed some other schools, um, you know, in New York City, Dartmouth, like pretty much all places. And quite frankly, I actually into pretty much every school that I interviewed at, um, which was nice. So I actually was able to kind of select where I wanted to go. But, it, you know, it was, <laughs> it was, um, I ended up selecting this program because of some of the added features that it had, some yeah. of the equities um, and the style of teaching, I guess. Different schools have different style. Like for like example, University of Southern California was more classwork, nine to five, every class was a structured class. But with the UCLA's program, it was more of you're going to focus on a system. So everything was systems-based. So they talked about wow. this in the system. And you weren't necessarily sitting in class from five. You had your structured lectures two hours a day. You had these different types of hands-on things that you were doing, you know, throughout the rest of the day. So it kind of broke it up. And that was what I, I liked that. And a lot of it still 
self-directed learning though so you weren't like it was like you had to go and do your own study like no one's necessarily telling you what to do but it, it, to me that was much more functional for who I was I guess yeah I think that's dope that you know obviously your hard work paid off because you know I, I mean I know it's not easy to get into every school that you interview for you know so I mean you you're special you're a special individual <laughs> hard work pays off and so um so that's dope were there any challenges like you know um, you picked your school, you know, this is a different lane as far as actually working with the underprivileged and things of that nature. What challenges did you go through um, while you were attending and doing like your residency? Yeah, so med school uh, challenges weren't too bad. I think I, you know, I put my best foot forward every every rotation. I can tell you I probably didn't like every rotation that I went through. And I knew surgery <laughs> was probably where I was going to go. But I, my main goal always was to make sure that people didn't know I didn't like the rotation or that I wasn't that interested. But I, not that I wasn't interested. I shouldn't say that. But it was just more um, I just knew where I, I, where I needed to be. But these other rotations you have to go through because you need to learn these things. So truthfully, that wasn't really so bad. I just more of just making those points, but still learning and taking an active role as a student to learn everything you can from each rotation because each rotation has something to give. And I think that's yeah. what people to realize so today I find some of our medicine students kind of come around and you're like oh, I don't really want to do surgery but I kind of feel like you still need to understand because if I'm going to call you for a consult as a family physician you should still know some of the things that I want you to do and why and so therefore it makes you better as a physician to know how other physicians do their job I guess um, in residency <laughs> yeah I mean I think so but you know sometimes people don't like to work as hard these days but um in residency I um Initially started out in a scam on purpose. I think I wanted to gain much more hands-on experience from the beginning. So I think yeah. that is a very important factor when someone's choosing where to go to residency. The bigger institutions are great. They have a lot of notoriety. Everybody knows their name. But you're like, there's so many different specialties and so many different people involved in those specialties that you don't get to be involved. So I tell people, I went to a smaller program that only had general surgery residents and internal medicine residents. But we had every kind of surgeon. So we had orthopedic surgeons, neuro, neurosurgeons, urology, like uh, pretty much OB-GYN, everything that you, would, that you would need. And I got to participate in all those surgeries. So it wasn't like I had OB-GYN residents who would do and deliver babies. I did C-sections, deliver babies, did oh, wow. copper pregnancies in the middle of the night. You know, I, I think um, I've done knee and hip replacements, um, patella tendon, you know, so I've gotten taken out kidneys, done all kinds of things. So you got a, a little bit of everything, like, you, right, girl, so don't, so don't believe the hype and the big <laughs> name and things of that nature, because those smaller schools actually uh, have that more intimate program, but also at the same time, you get a glimpse of every single thing, so, I mean. It's a skill set. It's a yeah. skill set. I think I found that I got into a bar from the day one, while you would find some of my other colleagues, for example, at different bigger name schools wouldn't get to the OR till like third or fourth year of residency. And it's like, dude, you just wasted three years of technical hands-on training, you know? And, and so I think that made me technically a better surgeon all around. So that's really the benefit. But again, games get you places too. So don't assume that not going to be named, but it just depends on what your goal is. <laughs> yeah. No, I so. mean, that's, that's amazing because that like when you go to a big name school you you have that stereotype you're like oh you're going to get the best of the best and sometimes those big like you just said the big name schools don't allow you to you know experience some of these things so you can help you decide what direction you want to go in and so that leads me to talking about like what was it about you know cancer or being a breast surgical oncologist that you know sparked your interest like what was it what was it that said this is where i need to go yeah, so I think um, I've had several glimpses of breasts. I think my first glimpse of breasts happened when I was actually in high school when one of my friend's sisters had developed breast cancer very young in her 30s, graduated from law school and just got hit with the bomb of breast mm. cancer. And, and hers was really aggressive. She didn't really last long with the, with the cancer. So that was kind of like first like, whoa, what's that? I didn't like dive into it too much then because I was still young trying to figure out what I wanted to do. When I got into residency, though, it was kind of one of those things where I'm a people person, okay, so I like to interact with people, interact with patients, but what I found is if I stuck with just general surgery and that was it, then you tend to do the, the gallbladders and the appendectomies and remove all these things and then people are fine and then they leave and you never see them again until they have another problem. Yeah. Who knows how long down the typical, line. Typical, typical. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I still wanted to have the relationship with my patients, know about their lives, know about what's going on, and I felt um, that being a breast surgeon, should I say, kind of put that in light because you 
keep track of your patients. You see them regularly. You don't, they don't disappear out of your life and you don't disappear out of their lives. And um, I think what really drove that home for me was one of my nurse friends who was a really close friend of mine and we're still friends today. She's actually from Louisiana, by the way. And nice. so um, nice. I'm in Pennsylvania, which is very funny. But um, she got diagnosed and I kind of went through this whole with her. I actually went through the whole diagnosis process because she had an abnormal wow. image, a mammogram. I was like, well, I'm just going to go with you to your ultrasound and then I'm going to go with you to your biopsy. And then I'm going to show up at the surgeon's office and be there for you during your visit. And then I'm going to do your surgery. And so I kind of went through that whole process with her and we are still in t- contact constantly throughout, even now. She's always checking in like, how's it going? Things good. And I'm checking on her like things are great. And I feel like that's really that well-roundedness that I wanted to be still involved in people's lives, still, um, helping people day to day. And I found that my experience with dealing with people people that the people I've met in the breast world or the cancer world have been so grateful for just the little minute things you do, even if it doesn't end the way you want it to end. You know, and I I think that is where I feel like I get, I feel like I have done something, I guess, or I've saved something or I've changed somebody's life in some way. And that's- I I think it's so amazing that, you know, um, you want to create that, safe space or like you want to know your your clients I, I know that a lot of times like even when i was interviewing my oncologist like some people are like in and out or until i found the right one and then it you could tell that they um are very very intuitive to what is going on and they it, it gets like a, a relationship like it's not just like hey how you doing it's just like how's your life how's you know what i mean how's your wife or whatever the case may be whatever is pertaining and and so um i have appreciate that you're that type of doctor because you don't find too many you know this is really like all right in and out in and out and so uh what is it like in the day of the life of a, a breast surgeon you know some days are um easier than others i hate to say it but when i'm in the operating room those are my more calm days i say i say calm days because although i'm doing something stressful ideally so operating isn't stressful like I said, it's more of an art for me. So it's kind of like I'm making sure this patient looks good at the end. I'm doing all these things, but I'm actually having the tough conversations that I have to have on my non-operative days, which is one, telling someone they have cancer, that we're going to have all these things and let me answer all your what ifs. And now I just blowing your mind. And now you're looking at me like I got two heads, you know, and that's, those right. are much more stressful and taking on someone's emotions. Cause sometimes it is emotional. They're trying not to hold, they're trying to hold back tears and I might let it flow, you know, and because right. <laughs> That's how, I mean, because I'm like, yeah, I'm like, if you weren't nervous or you weren't scared, if you didn't, if you didn't feel uneasy about that, I would think something's wrong with you. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But it's just, you know, my, those are more of a stressful day. So, you know, on a day to day, I will have younger patients who don't have, hopefully don't have cancer sometimes. And I've had my young patients who have had cancer that weren't expecting it to be cancer. And, and so you're trying to like gauge those conversations. You're trying to read people's face. I think I've gotten very good at being attuned to the non talkative cues of a patient to the yeah. facial expressions to the nods or to the uh, or to the whatever they're doing or they're expressing without actually saying it i have become very attuned to that over time and, and throughout even my residency and and i think um i'm able to read when they're like uneasy or when they're thinking something but they're not saying it or you know those kind right of right yeah, you can read their thoughts what was the toughest conversation that you had to overcome with a patient and how did you turn that frown upside down um I think, unfortunately, I probably had several tough conversations, but I think one of the hardest ones you, I have is um, I've had is a young woman who had just given birth to her, her sixth child, I guess, um, and six months she'd been dealing with this mass that people thought was just a milk cyst of some kind because she had just been yeah. pregnant. And, um, you know, six months she's like, it's not going away. It's, I don't know what's happening. So then when I'm seeing her, I'm just like, well, it could be a milk cyst, but I don't, you know, I don't have an ultrasound to like take a look. So I'm like, we can just at least stick a needle in to see what happens, you know? And once I stick a needle in, I'm thinking to myself, this is not going to be good because it didn't have any consistency of what you expect it to be. And um, I think, you know, from that moment, you're going to have to, you know, she's completely not prepared to hear what you're going to say. Like, you know, it, it, you, you got to tell them that like, this is very, very highly concerning. I think that we definitely need to make sure this isn't a cancer. And then the face is like, okay, you know, I just had a child. I have six kids, you know, you know, I have a yeah. husband at home. Lo and behold, she did cancer, unfortunately. By the time, yeah, by the time she got to me and me seeing her at that moment, it was already kind of other places. And that became a hard, hard hit for her. And she went through chemo. And I mean, I just kind of had to watch her kind of waste away a little bit. And 
and over time, it, at the end of the day, she didn't make it. I hate to say it, she didn't make it. And that was one of the, those were the ones that those are the ones the ones that kind of hurt your heart because you kind of feel like I could have done something if I had just known about what was happening to you sooner. That's where education becomes a big push for me. Just education, education, educating patients, physicians themselves as well. But you know, if the patient requests it and they're fighting for themselves, we're, they're going to be the best person to fight for themselves, whether the physician is knowledgeable or not. You know, yeah. that was a tough one to kind of get through. And, you know, um, I even found out today. That one of my patients I just saw a couple weeks ago was on chemo, her cancer progressed, and now she's going home with hospice. Um, and so, ah. it's, you know, and wow. she was so excited that, you know, it, that we were kind of making headway and then it kind of just turned left real fast. And so, mm -hmm. you know, you, you find out the hard ones that the hard fights aren't always won. Um, you know, and, and those are the ones that I think stick with you the most. Obviously, the ones that win and do great are awesome too. But, you know, I think you keep those ones in the back of your mind. Those are the constant humbleness that I receive <laughs> on a day-to-day, um, not day-to-day, -day, thankfully, but, you know, I guess when it's necessary. But um, when do you, when do you think is, is the good time to get that second opinion? You know, you, you mm -hmm. like, do you, do you also offer that, you know, say, hey, you should get a second opinion. But when is a good time to do that? You know, I think it's a good time if somebody feels uneasy or uncomfortable or a lot of times second opinions come about because someone's hearing something they don't want to hear. Yeah. But I think the second opinion solidifies that what they're hearing is correct. So yes. someone's having a tough time with something that I'm telling them because they think there could be a different way when I know there really is no other way. Right. Then right. Get a second opinion because then you'll understand that it's not I'm not coming from a place where this is what I want to be doing to you or this is how this is where I want you to be. I'm coming from a place where this is the best treatment for you. Um, I also think a second opinion is warranted when there are things that are out of my capabilities. So example would be, um, we don't have a big robust clinical trials at my hospital right now. We're working on that. It's a big work in progress and I think we're getting better. But there's certain trials that we just don't have that I think some people are candidates for because we can only do so much where we are. So right. those are those, you know, more aggressive tumors and the more aggressive cancers. But that is really a point to say, really, we need to get you in these trials. We need to go to these bigger institutions or MD Andersons or what have you to, to get into these trials that we think will actually work at least prolong, you know, life or, or what have you. And so those are when I definitely segue out. And I never tell a patient they shouldn't get one. Ask me my yeah. By all means, do what you got to do. I'm right here. I, I you know, if, if you, if you want to get your care with your second opinion, I'm, it does not bother me. If you want to stay with me after I'm okay with that. And I think that really makes them feel comfortable. Um, and most times they end up coming back because usually it's for something that I know is going to be straightforward. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. And they're like, Oh, well they said the same thing. It's all good. You know, <laughs> <laughs> right. um, now you said, you said something that, that just sparked my interest and, and then I'm big on it's like, and it's about being knowledgeable about like what's going on with your body and, and even what's, what is to come why do you think people are afraid to like really understand what's going on with their bodies or their diagnosis honestly that is always the one thing that always kind of throws me for a loop sometime it, it's one of those things where people just i don't know if it's just a control thing sometimes where they're like they have to control this part and they really but they really can't you know because no. it, unfortunately the cancer does what it wants and you can you can give it your best fight in certain areas but you know you can't you can't ignore it forever because it's going to just keep doing what it's going to do it does not know what you doesn't have a mind does not work that way but I, I find that it's an education factor for a lot of people that if they think they ignore it that it's going to go away or, or yeah. if and so to me that becomes not a, not a knowledge thing it's just more of a out of sight out of mind when it becomes no longer out of sight out of mind and again yeah. for example, I can tell you a patient that I saw recently that I can't, some kind of tumor on the breast about this big next thing you know is about this big <laughs> and I'm seeing them and I'm like and it smells, and I'm like, okay, so you've been going around life and going around people with this smelly, fungi thingy on your breast, and it's just like, so you, but it's been a year. So I'm like, so what position wow. to get treatment versus, you know, and so those, con those conversations are very hard because you kind of know, you know something's wrong, and you know they know something's wrong, but, right. you know, it, it's, just, it's just more of a denial thing. Um, but when it comes to education about things like the lady who had the milk cyst, I always say, you know, I always err on the side of caution is when I go out and when I go out and give speeches to people. I'm like, err on the side of caution. If you don't think it's normal, get it looked at. Yeah. And, I'm, and that doesn't mean get looked at by the physician by an exam. That means take, it, take an image of it some way. So if yeah. that's an ultrasound or a mammogram or whatever, request one. If, you, if, you're, if, you're, if your doctor is saying, no, it's just probably, it's probably this, and you say, well, I want to know if it's really probably that. 
Go ahead and yeah. get it, you know, but you have to be aggressive because sometimes they're going to assume it's this. And especially if you're in that 30s to 45 range where you think, okay, I have a baby, I'm having these little milk things. But you're in that range where cancer still actually can exist, even if you're exactly. less than the age of 50. Just, you know, and so, and I've had, like I said, I've had a young 31-year-old come in who's a resident and she had a little mass and she thinks, oh, well, maybe it's nothing, but I'm just going to check it out. Thank God we checked it out because I was kind of like, that is not, mm-mm. Yeah. <laughs> and then now, the old cancer at 31, you know, and so it's just a... Do you, it, do you see that it's a difference in the, you know, Caucasian white versus the black as far as your experience or like them asking more questions or just like, what is that? What, how was that like night and day? No, no pun intended, but night and day. How, what is that experience like? It is because you'll find, and, and you know, the, the, the Caucasian women tend to be more educated. They've gone and researched, they probably read something and, and whatnot. Are the, the black women tend to be a little bit more not trusting in medicine, which we understand has been ingrained in us from some times and years that we're out to kind of get them or something, which is, I understand where that thought comes from. Um, but it tends to be more on a level where, you know, I have someone tell me, well, I'm just going to let, let God do his thing. And I'm like, well, did you ever think that God put you here in front of a specialist to help you take care of this thing? Yeah. You know, I think I've learned to have to make that adjustment when I'm talking to somebody about that, because it's like, God puts you in places, doesn't necessarily handle things just directly for you, but they put you in front of people who are going to help you get to the place you need to be. And so exactly. therefore that's why you're because this is what I do for a living all day, every day. So he brought you to the best person he thought was capable to handle this problem. Exactly. Just not doing anything is not what he had in mind, you know, and that's kind of how I'm able to break through that barrier or something. There's times where it's just like, well, you know, I, I have to do this. I couldn't get off of work and this and I, and I completely understand that because one day off of work is a paycheck that maybe your life bill just didn't get paid. Right. So exactly. that's a whole different paradigm of issues, you know, and then maybe I don't have a rise. So I, I got to catch two buses to get down the street to get to the hospital that has to take care yeah. of, but who wants to take that time? And then if I miss the bus, I can't get back home. And then how am I, so there's a lot of other outlying issues that make that harder for yeah. a lot of African-American women and, and, and men in general, because it just sets trying to get to places and what you're doing. And, and if you don't have that, the insurance and you're trying, so that's why I work at two hospitals. You know, I work at the, the community hospital that's there for our indigent or self pays or people who don't have the money to fund. And I work at the, the main hospitals, I guess, where you have, yeah. her, you know, and, but it's, it's just because I need to make sure that we're taken care of in some way, shape or form, <laughs> you know, um, right. and that we get the appropriate care. So, um, of course, uh, you don't see this often, which is males that have breast cancer. Have you interacted with some, some men that had had breast cancer and, and, um, you know, what, as men, like, what should I be looking out for? You know, like, because it's, it's it's rare. It's not as common. They don't talk about it, but you know, like how was that experience with those, those men that were, that had breast cancer? Yeah, so usually I find that the men that end up developing breast cancer usually are, have been treated for something else, something like prostate cancer, where they've been given some kind of hormone after the fact, and then they've developed more fatty tissue around their chest. So then after a while, I think what happens is that people start to think, okay, well, they have redness in their breast, they must have an infection. And so it gets played off like an infection, but theoretically, it's probably cancer brewing in the skin that we don't know. So I've had that situation happen where someone went in, they cut in everything, and they're like, wait a minute, this is not right, you know? Oh, wow. And then, so it's, it's not as on the radar, um, I guess. And so I think whenever someone comes up with an issue, a mass or anything, it could just be normal breast tissue, but I think it's warranted to make sure that we do some kind of imaging, like I said before, to make sure it's not something more serious. And especially if that person is on some kind of hormone that's going to drive the same, the same drive it drives in a woman. Okay, so yeah. um, I just think, tell people, you know, if you feel a mass that, you didn't, that was not present there before underneath, underneath the nipple area or if you feel something hard, if you see the skin being pulled in, or if your nipples pointing out, but it's now being pulled in, the same thing exists for men. The same thing can happen. You feel a dimple on the skin. You feel a change. You feel some dryness on the skin. Like thing, any kind of thing that's not normal that hasn't been present all your life is not normal. And then make sure that it's not going to be something that's going to kill you. <laughs> you know. And that's kind of how I approach that. And we treat right now men the same as women. But again, it's just um, I'm sure as time goes on that that will change. I mean, I definitely have an abundance of men patients that I've had to take to the operating room and do surgery on. So yeah, what what is the BRCA gene? What is that? <laughs> so the uh, the BRCA is the breast related cancer gene, and it's, it's, they have a couple different. They have one and two. So essentially, what it is is that it's a DNA. Um, uh, I guess uh, problem or a 
an issue where you 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 have something wrong with your DNA essentially, and that DNA gets handed down from family member to family member over time. It can hand mm. it can be passed down from a man, by the way, to a to the daughter, or from a wow. mother to a daughter, or from a mom to a son, or for you know. So it doesn't have it's not it's not gendered um, in the sense of the word. So that's why I think that's the misconception that people think it's just only the females passing it down to the female. That's not really how it works. It actually can get it from a man or or a um, or the mom. Um, and so what it does is it increases someone's risk of um, a lot of breast cancer, of course, if you have one or two, um, you can have increased risk for um, things like uh, prostate cancer, if somebody has that, right, as a male. Um, and there's also um, increased ovarian. Um, and so, and then two has a couple more other things involved in it. So whenever I'm doing a history, I ask patients all their history, not just breast. I like to know if they have breast and ovarian, because those are the two obviously associated with, but then there's cancer, there's pancreas cancer, there's, there's prostate cancer, there's melanoma, there's stomach cancer. So there's a lot of different genes. It's probably about eight, actually, that will increase your risk for breast cancer, but also increase your risk for other things. And therefore, you should not only be surveilled for your breasts, but you should probably be getting colonoscopies and EGDs and all the other things done to make sure you don't get some other cancer that you are at high risk for. But the BRCA is the one that's most noticed um, for breast cancer um, these days. But we have a lot of patients with varying degrees of different mutations that will increase their risk of breast cancer. And that's what brought it to the forefront, but they're associated with other things. Wow. So, wow. Um, I'm going to switch gears. Now, um, you're familiar with uh, Dr. Green and the Orly Foundation a little bit, are you? Mm -hmm. what, what do you think about the, the things that she's doing and that technology, you know, um, and why it's not, no one is like, you know, coming out there and just helping her, you know, get this out there? Um, I think we should be. It's just the knowledge and getting, once, I think once you get all these trials done, you get a good complement of patients and you say to yourself, okay, these patients are, are rocking it out. They're not, we're curing people. We're not doing that. I think that's when it becomes alive. It, it takes, I, I feel like it takes years. Like, so for example, I give people examples. Like, well, the way I treat people is probably not what you would go read in a book because what you read in a book, before it gets in the book, it takes five, 10 years before it ends up in that book. Right. And so what I'm doing is because I'm sitting in the forefront of it because I go to all the meetings and I'm up, I'm up to date of the newest things that may not be printed yet. But the rest of the world, they don't even see it until it's printed somewhere. And it's usually five or 10 years down the line. I hate to say it, but it's usually, it takes that long. And, I, and I, it's interesting because, you know, we'll, we'll, I have these, these conversations with the residents that, we, that I teach and they're like, well, the book answer on your test is to do this. However, the way I'm going to treat this patient is like this. And I let the patient know it's not also written in stone. It's outside the paradigm, but we equate this data that we know over here that's not published to the data over here. You know what I'm saying? So um, I think that it's, it's one of those things to... Uh, to understand like that's just kind of how uh, it's delay. It's always a little bit of a delay um, when it comes to <laughs> research studies and what's new. Um, and um, yeah, I mean. Okay. Yeah, because I mean like, I, I, you know, we, we have our national partnership with, with her and we, we uh, support her. And so I, I'm glad that, you know, you're a fellow doctor and you know, you're like, yes, you are in support of that because sometimes you can't be so textbook, you know what I mean? Like if you're so textbook, you're never going to see outside of that, that focal vision. So that's pretty dope. So you, I know you, you talked about this, you do, um, you work at two hospitals in the community hospital. What is, what is that experience like at that other hospital for uh, those patients or those survivors um, at the other hospital? What, what does that experience look like? The community hospitals? Yes. Yeah. So it's a little bit different because, you know, I often have to find myself trying to tailor treatments so that people can get what they need without feeling like we're breaking their banks and that, that we're not, um, you know, we don't want to limit their access to the same type of treatments. So, you know, I think I, I got to that hospital in, in late 2017 and um, it took a while to kind of figure out the nature and the culture of the, of the environment of the hospital, I think a little bit. And then, um, trying to make the changes. So when I first got there, it would take months to get a diagnosis, which is really like extra screening, but something's wrong. So it takes you two months to come back in to get your diagnostic, and then it takes you another two months to get your biopsy, and it takes you. So it was this, it was this whole like drawn out process that I was kind of like, hmm, we need to fine tune that just a little bit. So then as I got there, we started taking on the role of looking at things and streamlining them and then educating our family physicians and our internal medicine physicians to say, okay, 
you get this study you need to get this done you don't have to wait for them to come see us because they used to just send everybody to the surgery clinic and then we had to go decipher but we couldn't get everybody in tomorrow right so right. there's a lot of things that had to be changed in that culture and i think that has i was able to bring upon um a breast trained radiologist into that hospital nice. that will work with me tana because we're both you know fellowship trained specifically in breast and that's all that we do and that has helped us together streamline that process and these patients have definitely gotten better faster swifter care should i say yeah. being just from that process um but also it's just providing them educational materials so i created a breast education binder that has as much information as they need with surgeries about their cancers risk benefits disadvantages radiation oncology like all these nuances exercises after surgery that they can take home with them and read through and have something to look at because not everybody's going to go on the internet everybody's going to do all those kind of things and so for that community i i brought that over to them to to utilize to help educate them because they don't go on the internet as much as my you know caucasian patients and so right. it's, it's one of those <laughs> things where what can i provide to the community that will help them educate themselves um about their cancer and, and then yeah. come back with the appropriate questions um so those are just some of the things that you about, encounter about how many people you know come in and out of the community center like how many people do you kind of like serve you know so on, the month? yeah so i go to the clinic um there every thursday afternoon and we can see any about 20 patients each during 12 to 2. <laughs> it's pretty um high impact um uh, patient care there because i'm only there half a day a week and then I actually do operations there on Wednesdays. So I operate there on Wednesdays and I see patients Wednesday, I mean, Thursday afternoons. And so it's kind of like putting that into the, to the fold. We're now starting to work on a little bit more of a high risk screen because that's become a very big thing where people want to know what their risk factors are. They should be taking extra precautions. Should they be getting extra imaging? Should they get genetic testing done? But again, taking that on is going to be another role because they don't necessarily have access to pay for an MRI that can cost them six grand, but do they have six grand? No, right? So how do you take care of that? And who has six grand anyway? But um, <laughs> exactly. So I think it's, it's a big deal to just say, okay, well now you need extra imaging, but we can't afford to give it to you. know, You can't afford to right. do it. Um, so that's kind of some of the things that you, we struggle with, but we, we do see quite a bit of patients just from breast um, through there. And sometimes we've gotten up to 25 patients in a, in a, in a short afternoon of patients. Wow. So how has how has COVID affected that? Yeah. Because has it has it has it been like maybe half or you know what? How did y'all have to adjust with COVID now? Well, so COVID everything came to like a hard standstill. I can tell you what happened: <laughs> hard standstill until people could figure out what we were gonna do. So yeah. initially, like everything shut down, closed, and I'm like, hold up, <laughs> you know, cancer patients still need to be seen and talked to. So then, you know, the good thing about like the American Society of Breast Surgeons and, and the Society of Surgical Oncology and the American College of Surgeons is that they hopped on COVID like, like they were probably the fastest societies <laughs> to get um, criteria and protocols like up. Yeah. Because, um, that is really where it was going to be important, right? Because, you know, when it comes to like family medicine, they, they would have been able to just do telemedicine and things. But for us, it was like we were holding people's surgeries. People got cancer, and you're like, well, you're not operating on me today? <laughs> like, well, your cancer's not going that fast, you know? And like, so yeah. it made a shift how we. Um, did things but for me I, I definitely made sure that we saw our cancer patients I didn't really push them to the back burner per se anybody with a new diagnosis if it was somebody that I felt like I had needed to see personally and, and physically I just I, mean, I, had, I just had to take the risk because I need yeah. to tell you about yourself from the from the camera like I need to actually feel and see but certain things I knew would be okay and I would call them and let them know what's going on what the plans of action going to be and that we're going to put you on this to keep the cancer kind of eh, for this time being until we kind of get to this phase of like everything on hold no elective surgeries nothing like you yeah. nothing to do that was elective and they considered certain because could they can certain cancers of the breast wait three months yeah absolutely <laughs> without having yeah. any problems or any changes absolutely that's why it became okay well who can get surgery who can't so what is going and then the other issue was like okay we're gonna give you chemo so the patient's like i'm gonna give you chemo during covid do i need it and i'm like Please. you know like aren't i gonna stop covid you know and and so that was, uh, it, it was pretty tough actually um, to kind of have those conversations that people were like, so then I had to keep track of like who, once they let me start to do surgeries, who I needed to put on the surgical schedule for. And it was like the catch up game was um, pretty difficult. I was operating four days a week, and operating three, but I was seeing patients all five days of the week throughout those operating days. So it was very, <laughs> um, <laughs> thick, <laughs> uh, heavy, um, but it was, it was because 
I knew that people were waiting and I needed to make the extra sacrifice to make sure that they got in not out there waiting with the cancer in, in, in their body. I, I salute <laughs> you, man. Like just, just hearing it, as you see, I'm smiling because it's like you are doing the work, but also too, you're making it happen and you're adjusting and, and it's so awesome. Like, so if I'm a man or a woman that um, needs to do prevention, what are some tips and things that I need to, to be myself or just any other woman that's listening to this right now need to be aware of um, when it comes to breast cancer prevention? So things that you can't control is what I call them. Things you can't control are um, weight. Um, so the goal is to maintain a healthy weight. The more fat you have, the more fat cells produce estrogen and progesterone. And most of the breast cancers that we see are sensitive to that. Okay. Cause, but what I tell people is weight is a cause, but reality is that it just feeds the cancer to grow. So maintaining healthy weight is always something that we can control. Um, I also tell people just being, being active, um, being active, um, exercising. Uh, we tell people about 30 minutes a day, five days a week is probably a good idea, a standard steady way to do that. Limiting alcohol intake, which has been hard in Corona. I could tell you <laughs> Like it's nobody's business, but um, it, you know you want to limit the amount of alcohol that you take in because we do know that there is some association with having three or more glasses a day of some kind of alcohol beverage can actually increase that risk of breast cancer. And it, I think it's more related to the liver because <laughs> liver actually can produce um, estrogen as well. Um, wow. And then obviously trying to prevent, um, it, it, it's, it's going to be hard to control things such as being a woman. Being a woman automatically is going to put you at risk because you are a woman and that is just it. Um, and then um, early detection is all we have right now <laughs> um, as yeah. far as, you know, trying to find things as early as possible. We start to dabble in this thing called chemo prevention, which is not chemo. It's actually taking a pill to help lower the risk that cancer occurs, but it's best for people who are a BRCA or a BRCA gene mutation. Yeah. They're at about 65% risk, lifetime risk for developing breast cancer. So you're trying to lower that risk. Um, but we, also, we always talk about healthy lifestyle, mammograms, physical exams. We do not necessarily endorse monthly self-breast exams anymore. What we really endorse is knowing your breast. So yeah. I mean, you should be familiar with what your breasts feel like. You're going to feel them every day, but you should know if something has changed. So the only way you get familiar is to be aware of what they like before they change. And so right. that's where we just say you want to get some, you really want to still examine the breasts because a lot of times women find their own issues and problems and bring them to the forefront. Yeah. Um, but reality is, you know, in the world, in all honesty, being healthy is just the best way to overall for your body, but it yeah. doesn't necessarily going to prevent what's going to happen. So I'm going to ask you this, is because, you know, I, I watch Grey's Anatomy, I watch <laughs> um, Dr. Strange, and do you have like a ritual or before you go into like surgery, do you like prep your mind? Do you play certain music? Like, or are you just like, nah, I just need to get this done. Like, do you have like your own little thing before you go I into the room? I do wear really cool hats, you know? Like, I like to just say, okay, what's going to match my, I'm a more of like, I wore this color scrub today. I'm going to put this hat on. I have a superwoman hat. I got like all kinds of things. Okay. <laughs> so I do put those kind of things on. But as far as like preparation, the preparation for me is usually making sure the patient has everything they need to get done before we got to the operating room to make sure I have all the things that equipment that I need at the side, make sure that if I have, an, I have a portable ultrasound, I carry on my, like a sling oh. and hook it to my phone if I need to. So that's always around. Um, and I'm able to just ultrasound with my phone. People are like, whoa, my new technology is great. That's been amazing. Oh, wow. uh, so when I go to the, like if I go to the hospital inpatient, I don't have to go around for one of those rolling machines. I literally just pull it out my bag and I'm like, and I'm like seeing what's going on. So um, I'm always prepared for the, what the, the potentials of things not going the way you always plan them. But I think for me, um, I'm pretty calm and cool and killed when I'm in the operating room. So if there's an issue or problem, it doesn't really, I don't really fluster pretty easily. So <laughs> it's just, I take it I as like that. You said, I, I got a superwoman hat. <laughs> you know, I got the portable ultrasound. That's, Yo, it, 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 it's so convenient though because it you're waiting for a nurse to bring a, a machine and you be like, okay, let me get this done. And, you know, let they me don't know where it is half the time. I can tell you. I'm like, they're like, where is it? I'm like, okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> what What do you like most about your specialty? You know, like your your practice. Um, I think my specialty has an amazing group of people who rally behind their patients. We do a lot of um things in that we hope 
make the experience better for patients. So, you know, the group of, of surgeons, men like who, who go to our society meetings, who are trying to do things for the betterment of the patient to, you know, we've gone from what we call that, that modified, that, that's a radical mastectomy where we used to just chop people's breasts, their muscles, everything, and they would, all their rib cages would be exposed. And, and, you know, we've gone from such radical deforming surgeries to be thinking about women, men for that matter, as a person where what you do is could be disfiguring and so they shouldn't have to be wearing that disfigurement every day. And so I think we have progressed. I, I'm starting to see the tides of the insurance companies change for patients who decide, okay, I don't want to have both breasts. I don't want to have to go through mammograms and ultrasounds and this and that mm. every time because it brings me so much anxiety. It used to be a struggle for a patient to say, well, I have cancer, how can I get this one removed? And I'm not oh, saying wow. that's always the right answer. Some people think that's overkill, but it's at the same time, it's a person's choice. You know, I think it's a choice to say, I don't want to go through a mammogram every time I have to go through a mammogram. And, and in my mind is thinking, oh my God, what's going to, from mammogram, that's every year, right? So, you know, or I have to get this MRI done, are they going to find something and bring me back? And so that can create a lot of anxiety in people. And then well, let's say someone has a 44 double D breast, but you're going to do a mammogram on one side, but they still have that 44 double D, like, you know, Yes, they pay for reductions, but why can't we just make them flat and then they both be flat and that's how they want to go, you know? So there is just, the insurance company finally starting to catch up to the fact that, yes, does it make sense to them? No. But does it make sense to the patient? Yes. So, you know, you're going to reduce, you're going to pay for the reduction on the other side, but you don't want them to get a mastectomy. So like, I don't, it's kind of one of those things where I'm just like, "Mm," you know, if they have to get an adjustment to this breast, why can't they just be a mastectomy? So you, you said insurance and insurance is huge. How is there a special type of insurance, you know, folks should have or just have an insurance that can cover these big uh, ticket items? Because I know for myself, I was blessed. Thank you, Wells Fargo. Because, <laughs> <laughs> because when I saw the, the breakdowns and, you know, I yeah. had my deductible and I said, I will be more than happy to pay that deductible than of all the other stuff, than all the other stuff. Like, how is how important is it is to have insurance and how many people come in there without insurance? So it's it's very important to have insurance, especially one when you, you get a diagnosis of cancer, hate to say, but who could predict that? That's the other other problem right. with that. But the um the ones who don't have insurance, it could be a little tough. I think we do have programs in place. We find the money, there are grants, you know, you know, Louisiana has grants throughout the state that let us do certain things, screening mammograms, yeah. the patients can apply for, you know, um, special funds, we call it free care, to help them get the treatments and stuff that they need without paying up the wazoo. And we, we have uh, payment plans. I mean, all those kind of things exist. It's easier to have insurance, although it can still be a big burden of out-of-pocket costs. If, you, you know, depending on if you have a high deductible or low deductible plan, you know, all that stuff matters. And, and I, I often tell people, the best advantage you can do is take, if your company has a health savings fund or something like that, and you know you're going to be getting certain things that are going to cost you out-of-pocket cost, put it in your free savings plan because what it's going to do is, one, it's going to help your taxes. So at least it comes out pre-tax. Yep. You may be able to recoup some of that money, but then when it comes to paying that bill, you've already set the money aside already over months of time versus a large sum coming out when you're not ready to expect it or you don't, yeah. you don't want to give it, you know, <laughs> going on. So that's one way I try to, you know, segue people into savings, but try to spin it into a way to at least give you some some tax break or something that yeah. you, you know you're going to use it. If you know you're going to use it, put yeah. it in it. You don't know they're going to use it, so they're not prepared, but I will tell them we can wait a year for you to kind of recoup that to do this additional, start to start to do this additional imaging. Yeah. One year is probably not going to affect that, but let's put that six grand that you're going to have to pay out of pocket for this MRI out of your fund so that we'll, and then we'll do it towards the mid to half a year where you've already recouped that and now you can just pay with what you've already, and you're not losing the money outright. Exactly, exactly. So, um, I do a lot of coaching that, like as if I know what I'm talking about, but I mean, it's just, <laughs> just, <laughs> it's just um, I just learned this stuff over time. I'm like, man, this is, you know, expensive. And I try to shop around. So this MRI place is much cheaper because it's not a part of the hospital. So you might want to go to this MRI, you know, and it's like, yeah. I find it out on purpose because these things that we, we want to do to help better detect cancer can be expensive. Exactly. Or to treat cancer can be, I mean, some of the, I don't know if you ever looked at I me. Mean, yes, you probably have. <laughs> the amount it costs yeah. to get one bag of chemo, depending <laughs> on the chemo, be like, wait, is that 60 grand? That's a whole car. That's a whole real nice car, you know? And it's like, hold up, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it's like, if you had to pay the 60 grand, you'd be looking at people like, I guess I'm going to be dying today. Like, you know, exactly. because, 
Um, just just the hospital, just three days in a hospital alone is like almost like a quarter mil. Mil, is that is crazy. So I'm just like, it's not for the faint of heart to not be prepared with insurance. And, and again, um, we, we do things in the community to help those who do not have insurance. And, and yeah. And that's, and that's what I love about the work that you do. Yeah, the people who suffer the most are mid-range workers. You know, the ones who put the brunt of day-to-day -day work have just enough that they don't cut off. They don't have enough to cut off for the, the insurance. We should be supporting farm workers. They're the working members of society. But, you know. Gotcha. So um, now, nah, thank you so much for that. So we, we, we have a section here where we give our positive deposits, but with you, I have, I have a little different challenge for you. So I want to give you, your, I want you to give your top three prevention tips for men and women. And then I want you to give the positive deposits, those words of encouragement or those strategies that will help any survivor, any med, med student that is, you know, wanting to go down this road and then, um, and then that's a wrap, you know, that's a wrap. So I need, I need six. So I, I'm giving okay. you six. So right, let me see. prevention, then your three positive deposits, and then we'll uh, talk about how people can reach out to you and, and get in contact with you. So my three preventions, my first prevention is this. Know your family history and make your family speak. Because there is prevention in that, because we can actually risk and maybe help you lower it before it even ever hits or exists. That's the number one. Yes. Number two, maintain a healthy lifestyle as best you can, and that means be active. That means maintaining healthy weight and eating better. Um, and tip number three for prevention. Um, unfortunately, I gotta say drink less of those very hard to do. So, <laughs> <laughs> number three, um, uh, you know, uh, three, but mainly the top two are the most important, to be honest with you. Um, then positive deposits. Let's see. For survivors, recognize that you become a survivor from the day you're diagnosed. It does not start the day you beat it. It's the day that you were diagnosed because you're beating it from that day onward. And stay positive. Yeah. That is what I would say. Positive, positive. Always stay positive. Always stay active and keep doing the things you want to do because that is how you get things far better. For my other positive deposit, I would say um, for the students. I do a lot. I do a lot of work with our um, LSU students. And it's always hard to figure out what you want to do in life because you're only exposed to a portion of what medicine has to offer. Mm. But the advice I've given to a couple students recently was if you're at a place where you are surrounded by several different specialties and you haven't had much interaction with any of them, when you have downtime, reach out to those specialties. Because if you're at a place where they allow students, then they're going to be receptive to you speaking to them about their specialties. So we don't get a lot of exposure to head and neck sometimes, which is ENT. You don't get a lot of exposure to the surgical oncology side, although general surgery does sometimes involve that. You may not get as much exposure to ophthalmology of the eyes. You may, you know, but if you have that exposure on your campus, reach out to those individuals that you see on the board or the surgery board or that you see and see if you can contact them and say, hey, I'm just curious about your specialty. What is it that you do and what do you like about it? Because you need to take those opportunities to do and figure out what you want to do. But it doesn't have to always be the standard track. Yep. <laughs> um, my third deposit is probably for those up and coming um, physicians getting ready to graduate from their programs and schools. Um, we're going to have a shortage of primary care physicians. We're going to have shortage of pretty much every physician in the world, but the biggest brunt of the primary care docs. And unfortunately, um, they take a lot of the heat and get less of the pay. It just, unfortunately, how the cookies crumbled, but we still need champions in the community helping people get better on a healthy level, not just a surgical level or any of those specialty levels. Um, but um, stay positive about that. Try to find ways to become efficient in your job to make your job better. When we have these medical electronic records that take up all of our time, there are ways to become efficient. Figure it out so you can still enjoy your job. Um, and that's what I would try to I do that every day. Rearrange, try to make sure that. But me, I'm not a big, I'm not worried about getting my notes done. I get to work at six o'clock in the morning to give myself two hours to get my notes done, or I'm up till 10 o'clock at night. But the point is, 
not to make the patient wait in, in, in my office. So I don't sit around typing my notes um, with my patients in the office. If I can't get the note done between time, I keep moving because the patient shouldn't be waiting in the waiting room forever. That's not how I don't like that. And I also don't like to type my note while the patient's in the room because I like to look them in the face. So I don't, I don't get on the computer, although we have computers in my room. I usually am sitting directly in front of the patient on a stool and just literally looking them in the face when I'm talking to them about anything. It's not to even be cancer, but I don't feel that I like to keep my eyes and head turned trying to, that's just not me. So if I have to take the brunt of the after before situation and get those done outside, it is what it is. But everybody has their own process. Um, and for me, it's always patient first. Everything else is just a secondary situation. But I understand that you do have to get these things done, especially if you see 40 patients a day. So, <laughs> and our medical professionals do see more patients a day. I spend an hour talking to my cancer patients so that they get an hour chunk of my time. So that's just kind of how that process works. Well, Dr. Grisby, you done dropped some mean knowledge. I love the, the prevention tips and just your positive deposits that you dropped on us. So if folks want to re reach out to you and, and kind of, you know, have more questions or just follow what you're doing, how can we reach you on your social medias? So on Instagram, I am Shonda, which is S-H-A-U-N-D-A-K-G. Um, and on Facebook, it's just Shonda Grisby. I'm usually able to be found that way. I have a personal and I have a medical side. So either way, you can find me. Either way, you're going to get this great <laughs> knowledge. And so, so I'm so grateful and thank you and honored to have you on here. You know, um, like, this was amazing. This was amazing. And so for, for those that are tuning in, you can catch this on our website, www.positivedeposits.org. Uh, that donate button is very active. So please, please support. Um, we're on all streaming platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. So you can't miss us. And so um, we are glad that you tuned in. And of course, we are here to transform minds and change lives. And we'll see you next time.